0: Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Welcome to episode 56. Today, I am talking to Christy Adams. Christy just published her book, Parable of the Brown Girl. The stories of girls of color are often overlooked, unseen, and ignored rather than valued and heard. Christy shares the stories of several young girls of color revealing profound cultural and theological truths. Christy and I chat about what led to the writing of her book, about providing a safe space for young girls of color to talk about their experiences, common struggles girls of color face, and God's truth that speaks to those struggles. Listen to what Christy has to say about the Imago Day, the image of God as it relates to the struggles of a girl of color.
1: And the struggle so much, particularly with black girls, there's so much aesthetic uh, challenges. It's a constant thing your whole life you know, because you're growing up in a world where you are the minority and where your the uniqueness of your looks is not celebrated by the totality of the culture. And so it's this constant thing, you know, and for me, the Mago Day and the image of God message is so important. But for me, for that one, particularly with churches, I put a lot of responsibility on churches and ministries for that, because that's where we need to be hearing it. Now, of course, in school, you know, I was getting things left and right, but in, in, in and in other spaces, but churches, I think, particularly have a real responsibility to project that message, and that's not where you know. Well, we're all one, so it's all good. You know, like that's not enough. That's it's not to say that that in and of itself is not um, sufficient. Like you know, it's just not. It's it's definitely not enough. And I think that there need to be messages about what that means, the image of God. I think the churches, I think we get a lot of personal relationship stuff. You know, you get a lot of that growing up and how to have a personal relationship with Christ and, you know, sin, a lot of internal, internal. And and that is, hey, uh, you know, your soul work and your spirit work, that's what's most important. But when your external is being sort of like vilified daily, how do you reconcile that? And that is where those messages we are literally all the image of God, but not necessarily like, hey, us as a total is the image. It's you're the image of God. You're the image of God. You're like so sort of like on an individual basis.
0: After listening to today's episode, I hope you were encouraged to read Parable of the Brown Girl. I hope you will lean in and learn from these precious stories and from the truths of God Christy shares. Good morning, Christy. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you
1: for having me
0: yeah let's go ahead and just jump in and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do.
1: Yeah, so currently right now i'm a chaplain at a boarding school in Pennsylvania the Hill school i'm smiling because well they can't they can't see me smiling, but I'm smiling because um boarding schools there's never one job. <laughs> Sort of the job on paper, but you're usually doing like five different roles. So I'm the chaplain there, but also um, instructor of religious studies. And so I teach a religion and film class. And um, I also am co director of diversity and inclusion. And um, I'm a dorm parent, basically, just means I'm responsible for like maybe about 25 girls
0: now do you live there
1: yeah everybody has to from the headmaster to you name it everybody has to that's something that i that i realized during my interview that you you have to sort of live on the campus so you don't necessarily have to live like in the in between the kids they give you really really fantastic housing that's cool yeah everybody lives there and um when we get breaks like for example like right now we break you know so we're breaking for about two and a half weeks now um so that's what i that's what I do as far as like my career is concerned, and then also I split my time between there. That's in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, um, which is where I live. In New Jersey is about an hour and a half from where I work. So my family's there, my church. Um, so I'm still very involved at my church, and lots of friends, and some of the other things I do, like big becoming conference, which we'll probably right. talk about, and the girls that I work with. So,
0: so do you drive back and forth like every week? Uh, no. I was going (laughs) to say, girl, that seems crazy.
1: No, no, no. It just depends on, you know, what, what's going on. So for example, like September through August, I, September through, not August, through like now. Yeah. Or maybe through Thanksgiving.
0: Like that first semester of school. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's nonstop. Mm -hmm. If I can sneak out, you know, it's because I'm really, really busy and I need to drop my dog off with my parents and you know, I don't have I can't have time for her like that particular week or something like that. That'll be usually like the majority of when I'm actually sneaking away. But now moving forward, like with the book coming out and a lot of my connections and opportunities are in New Jersey, like speaking opportunities and things like that. um, So I'll be going back and forth quite a bit. And then in the summer, we're off for the whole summer.
0: Nice. And so it's complete break for a while.
1: Yeah, so I'm there, you know, when I want to be, or I'm traveling, or I'm here, or, Mm -hmm. so it's good, but when you're on, you're on. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, girl, I can't imagine that. (laughs) Uh I mean, just be, because it's an all-girls school.
1: Uh, No. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. Um, It used to be all boys oh. up until 1999. Um, cool. So the hill was always all boys. And now it's with boys and girls. And actually, it's like 60-40. So it's about 40% girls, 60% boys. So more boys. Wow. I just spend more time with right. the girls just naturally by nature of sort of where I live and, and who I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. But
0: Well, tell us, how did you come to know Jesus? A little bit about your faith journey.
1: You know, I always say, like, I grew up in church, but it really yeah, wasn't until college that I really started my faith journey. Um, I, I, you know what? I don't want to slight my upbringing because I know a lot of that was really, really important. I, I would say my personal faith journey where I sort of right. started taking ownership over, you know, like, okay, who am I? Why Why am I a believer? What do I believe in? You know, those types of things. Um, it's what really my parents taught
0: me, truly my right. own. Oh, yeah. we I hear that so much,
1: which those yeah.
0: foundations— set you up for success a lot of times, I feel like.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's why I said I don't want to slight it. I think I used to do that a lot. But in retrospect, those are just like seeds that were planted. Mm-hmm. You know, we were really, um, really involved in my church, the church that I'm still serving at right now.
0: Cool.
1: We moved from New York to New Jersey when I was like in the second grade. My church at the time was going through a pastoral transition. So the pastor that is leaving now, interestingly enough, I'm on the search team for the new pastor mm. was just coming in. Wow. So he's been And so, you know, the church was starting to be sort of rebuilt at the time that my family joined. So the foundations of the church and the foundations of like my faith and even honestly, like my family, you know, really started there at First Baptist. And uh, my pastor at the time was really very much had a focus on youth and youth development. And so, you know, I was really blessed to be there at that time where they were really wanting to invest in young people, like spiritual development and, personal academic you know all of those things yeah that really was helpful just being that active Mm -hmm. hearing it and being involved etc and so um i would say it started then but it wasn't until i got to college that i was really like okay why why do i believe what i believe and i really think i accepted christ you know when i was like 10 and then i would say i was born again again you know maybe like the end of my freshman year you know when i was like you know what No, I want to give, you know, rededicate my life to Christ and, you know, start this start this new journey into sort of young adulthood and ownership over my faith. So.
0: Yeah, and where did you go to college?
1: I went to Temple University. Okay.
0: Yeah. Did you do grad school there, too? Because I know you have an MD. I,
1: I did. I did grad school at Princeton. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I think I re-dedicated re when I was at
0: Princeton. Well, I mean, I used to always be like, what does that, you know, I've heard people who grew up in the church. You know, I probably got saved. I prayed the prayer or whatever, you know, seven or ten to ten times up until right. I was in college. And I don't know, now that I'm an adult, I find myself, honestly, not... I mean, praying a prayer of repentance almost daily and just saying, right. like, Jesus, I need your blood to cover me again. And it's not because I didn't believe that you did it yesterday.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I'm just in need of the gospel every day. Right. And I think when you're young and you're going through those transformative years, you're just still trying to figure out so much. Mm. Like, do I need to be resaved, saved or is it really <laughs> just a, I know I'm messing up. And so I'm yeah. asking Jesus to come and wash me clean again.
1: Right. It's funny because I use that sort of rededication language only in those years. You know, it's not yes. sort of in this later time in my life. I'm not. It really, like you said, is just sort of repentance and just the sense of like an understanding of what it means to be human. I mean. But then, you know, um, yes. which I think I had some difficulty between sin and humanity. Mm-hmm. It's the same, you know, it's sort of one and the same, but just sort of like okay, who who am I trying to be? And also who am I sort of, you know, innately who am I and how do I sort of live in that tension? I can, I have that language now to be able to say, but at the time it was like, okay, I messed up. I got to start over. I know. You know, it's sort of like clean slate type of Christianity, which honestly I think was probably the language that was used in youth ministry growing up. Oh, for sure, girl. You know, we try to like, I think we, we try to, and I say we, minister to, to young people yeah. and use like relevant language and things that they would understand. And I think, you know, we don't always necessarily choose the best language. And I think the clean slate language was used a lot for mm-hmm. us growing up. And I don't think that was a bad thing. But I yeah. also think looking back, it sort of made me think, oh, man, I got to start all over. Let me, you know. I wasn't know, really it. saved the first time. Right. <laughs> right. What do I let do? Me, let me get slate. And then you mess up the clean, you know, you mess up and then it's like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, it's this big thing. So I don't necessarily hear that language as much anymore, but in the nineties, I think it was a big deal.
0: Oh yes. Yes. I'm a nineties girl too. So I know <laughs> it's so true. Well, you are very passionate about providing young women and girls of color with a safe and supportive space to really help them grow and thrive. Will you share with our listeners, what is it like growing up as a woman of color? And why is it so important to provide this safe space for them to thrive?
1: Yeah. So personally, it's funny because we were just talking about the language, right? Mm -hmm. There were things that I was experiencing that I didn't understand why, you know, sort of like you grow up and even growing up in church, right? And it's like, we're we're all one, and we're all family, and one Christ, and sort of all of that. But for me, it was like, okay, you know that, but then why am I experiencing these, why am I having these different experiences, mm. these unique experiences that are challenging in ways that I felt like were specific to me? I didn't, you know, I was a kid, so I didn't know that right. other girls and I would say specifically black girls, because I think other young girls of color and other ethnicities, you know, experience it, have their own unique perspectives. Right. right. But I just, I didn't, I, I didn't know. I thought it was just me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know it was a collective thing. And I kept silent a lot about the things that I was experiencing because of that, because I was like, number one, I didn't think anyone would understand. Number two, I thought something was wrong with me Mm. because I was the one dealing with it, you know? And then I felt like, well, why? I couldn't reconcile why I was having these thoughts or whatever experiences and no one else was, or I thought no one else was. You know, like looking back now, you know, writing the book and just before I even wrote the book, you know, when you hear girls talk about these things and you're like, wow, like, and they all think they're going through them in isolation. I think now there's a little bit more, you know, with technology and social media and television and all of that, you know, people are starting to, like, have these sort of, like, empowerment, Black Girls Rock and all these other sort of endeavors where people are, I think, the girls are starting to hear a little bit more of their narrative and their story yes. in those spaces. I didn't have that growing up. So I say all that to say, you know, I think it's it's so important for every girl period you know to know that they're not not alone in what they're going through i think it's important for them to even if you know you haven't experienced it yourself to be able to say like you know no what this this is something that is a valid and a unique experience and something that you know it's not okay so that was another thing there will be times there were a few times where I would be explaining something that I was going through, or whatever, and like someone would say that 's not okay mm. or it 's a or it 's okay for you to feel that way, you know that right, and i 'd be like, "Oh, I guess so, yeah. you know it 's really important for Particularly, you know, girls of color sort of that are growing up in spaces, whether they're in spaces where there's people that look like them or particularly the ones where they're growing up around people that don't necessarily look like them. To know that they're not blending, Mm. you know, I think sometimes that whole like we're all one in Christ type of thing will sort of like make it seem like we're all sort of this big melting pot and everybody is... Um, They're not blending, that they're unique and important to the body of Christ, that they're a part of what I mentioned in the book, the Imago Dei, the image of God. So that's sort of in summary.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's interesting because as I'm listening to you talk about that melting pot idea, I can even envision in my mind some people who are listening to that right now (laughs) going, Mm -hmm. but that is what we are in Christ. And it's a trying to understand, you know, it's almost... I don't, it's not the same thing, but there's always this tension between like grace and truth. Well, there's this tension between we're all created in the likeness of God, yet we're unique. Right. And you can totally celebrate your cultural diversity and be independent in that and still be, like you said, the Imago Dei, oneness with God, like God, yet Mm -hmm. unique.
1: Right.
0: And I think sometimes people just really struggle to wrap their mind around what that looks like and what that really means.
1: Yeah, because it's something I think that we can't comprehend. Like we can't, yeah. we can't comprehend the uniqueness and the multifacetedness of God, yes. right? And so because of that, we sort of put our own sort of limitations on yeah. God as far as what we perceive God to be. And, you know, it's hard to think out of that box, you know, but we do it all the time when we say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is so interesting. So true. Right? Yeah, we have no problem with that. You know, because if, if, if we approached Father, Son, Holy Spirit the same way that we do diversity, then we would we would think that we were like polytheistic, right? Like we would, we would sort of be worshiping three gods. Yet we can easily worship, we can easily sort of comprehend the idea of worshiping one god.
0: With three distinct persons.
1: Yet we don't understand the diversity of the human body, you know, of the...
0: That's such a good way to look at it.
1: Yeah. So interesting.
0: Yeah, that is like everybody doesn't have to look, feel, worship, be celebrated, you know, the same. Mm -hmm. It's just there's a distinctness that is good. Well, let's do talk about the parable of the brown girl, which is your book. What led
1: you to write the book? I was actually approached by a publishing company a few years ago, maybe two years ago. They said, "Hey, you know, we've we've seen some of your tweets, some of your writing. We'd love for you to write for us." And I um, said, "I don't have anything to write about." And they're like, "You know, let's talk it through." So I talked it through with one person in particular. We skyped, and I said, "You know, I can't think of anything." But at the time, I was counseling. I was actually living here in New Jersey before I moved to Pennsylvania, and I was working at a counseling center. It was called the Christian Wellness Center. Mm-hmm. And I was a pastoral counselor there. So I had been working with a lot of girls. At the time, I I said to the person, I said, well, you know, I've been working with a lot of girls. I'm not, you know, maybe it's something around there. And the more I thought about it, you know, I to come back to this phrase that my pastor used to say, you know, you write about what you know. If you ever write, you write about what you know. And. I felt like I didn't know anything. But then, you know, I said, you know, I know how to be a black woman I knew how to grow up as a black girl. And yeah. I've been working with a lot of black girls in all the spaces that I've been in and particularly in this counseling center. Right. These are the one on one times where didn't like even when I was at Azusa Pacific University or Georgetown, I was always working with girls. Um, but in this case, it was actual intentional one-on-one, yeah. you know, counseling sessions. And so I said, you know, maybe I'll write about that. Yeah. Brainstormed a little bit and, you know, thought through like, oh, well, what if Jesus met one of these girls? What would it look like in the Gospels? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's where sort of Parable the Brown Girl came about. The, the parables are always sort of named something that's yeah. sort of creative, metaphorical. And so that's how I got the title but I said, you know, I really want to write about some uh, black girls, but also changing some sort of theological or creating some theological narratives for them or re- reframing some sort of spiritual narrative around black girls and black girls experiences. Right. Because I, I had learned so much from these girls. I really have and learned a lot about myself. Right. right. Because I feel like I see a mirror a lot of times in them. Anyway, so I use that as an example because I pitched it and she was like, "This is fantastic, let's do it." She pitches it to her crew and they rejected it. So I always use that story because they rejected it because I needed that to happen. So they did and they said, "You know, we want you to write about it's too narrow. The the audience is too... Oh yeah, we don't think the audience is going to sell." Interesting. And I said, "Wow, you're really proving my point." That was really what the whole point of my proposal was, that, Isn't that interesting? These, these girls are marginalized, that they are not ever really taking center stage, you know. Not enough and, people will be interested. Right. Oh, you yeah. know, um, that, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. So that that proved it. So I took that and pitched it to two other um, companies, and both of them responded favorably, and I went with Fortress. So that was how the book came about. Wow. So it's a great story. And the person who I worked with on the first one works for Fortress now.
0: Oh, well, that's fantastic. Because, I mean, yeah. she or he, I think you said it was she, a she. Yeah, I yeah.
1: shout her out my book. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, just really supported you, it sounds like, yep. and believed in what
1: you were doing. She did. That's yeah. awesome. I didn't find that out until after my book was written. Um, and then she sent me a message on Twitter. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you're right. So I went back and I thanked her for my um, acknowledgments.
0: That's so cool each chapter of the book does cover a common struggle that a girl of color faces. And some of those being, you know, the angry black woman or the angry black girl, the black girl being insecure in what I know of people would call it insecurity in a white space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. The not having a voice. There are all kinds of examples in the book I watched a couple of the videos that you did with some of the young women Mm. that I will link in the show notes so people can go and look at those Mm. and see some of the impact of what those chapters as they read them and just collectively said, yes, somebody understands. This is like my voice coming out. Mm. Talk to us a little bit about the response of the girls that you have sat with, the girls who have read this book. And just what their response has been.
1: Yeah, so not too many of them. Some, I I try to keep it anonymous. Yeah, And so some of them actually, some of the stories are like two girls in one. Mm. And it wasn't hard because their stories are so similar. Some of them that it just, they were just overlapping left and right. Majority of them haven't read it. Um, and a lot of those girls that I sat with um, and had that conversation with, I gotten opinion, opinions from them, yeah. but hadn't really like sat with them for the actual main story. But one in particular, the last chapter, I always use her as an example because she, you know, it's not an exploitative chapter. She doesn't care. People knew who she was. So she read and I actually recorded her. Um, I don't know if you saw it. I recorded her reaction. It was so cute. Yeah.
0: Is that the so one who she... was like crying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was sweet. though. <laughs>
1: I didn't expect it. So I said, oh, you know, she's like, is this it? And I was like, yeah, it was on my table. And she is a student at the boarding school I work at. And so she um, sort of picked it up. And I was doing what I normally, you know, kids are always over. So she just looks up and um, they call me PK at the school, short for Pastor Christie, And so um, she was like, PK. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, And so all of a sudden she starts crying. And I'm just like, so I was like, I got to record (laughs) that. (laughs) <laughs> I That's like, great about record, record it. I was like, I'm recording because I just didn't expect this reaction. Because the book is also written, like, sort of very adult in a way and not that, not that I think teenagers can read it and, and understand no, I know what you're saying for kids, you know? And so I wasn't sure. And she actually isn't a believer at all. And she's like, would say that she's agnostic. So, you know, I just wasn't sure. So she wanted to read it. I let her read it. And so then when she reacted that way, she just said, you know, I, I, I I'd never really felt heard and understood. And so she's like, I just, I felt like you, you heard me and wrote down what I felt. I said, yeah, this is really important for me to record, not just for people, but for me to see because I need to hear that. I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. And she said, I even got the God part. I didn't I didn't get that on camera because um, mm-hmm. it wasn't until later. And <clears throat> she said, I even got the God part. And that, wow. that was it for me. That was it. The aha moment of like, this is what it's all about moments because I wrote, um, but it's like in the past when I used to do plays when I was in college. And I used to say, you know, can I just write about anything? Or I feel like I need to minister the gospel. I feel like I got to write specifically, you know, yes, come to Jesus, you know, like, yes. this is like, that was like, so important. I wasn't sure. And so, you know, as I've grown and um, evolved, you know, my prayer is always that people, regardless of what the topic is, they can see Christ in it. Mm-hmm. And that that will shine, like, regardless of what I write specifically. And um, for her to say that, I was like, yes, that's it, because I want everyone to be able to read something, read this, get something out of, but for them to be able to get the God part, right? Quote, unquote, like she said. Yeah. And that was after just reading a chapter. So that was really important to me.
0: And really encouraging too, I'm sure.
1: Mm -hmm. Because
0: I know, I mean, I've never written a book, but I know I've heard so many authors say, you know, you just put your heart and soul out there. Mm hmm. And it's just like holding your breath, waiting for the response.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I always say you have to write for an audience of one. You know, you're really just writing for yourself because you, as you're writing, as you're doing the writing process, because if you're writing and you're thinking about what other people are going to be thinking, you're never going to get anything written. First off, it's just, you're going to be debilitative, you know? Mm. Um, because it'll stop you, because you'll be thinking so much about yeah, other. What about people. if
0: this person takes it this way, or
1: right? Every word you'll be thinking through it, and you you won't just be able to write freely and authentically. So when I was writing in Panera Bread or Starbucks or wherever I was <laughs> writing, it was always if no one reads this book except for me, I'm I'm the I'm the audience here.
0: And you're writing what you know that the Lord has really like put on your heart as you're mm-hmm. to paper, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that as we're talking about that and you talked about in plays, you know, and and this one young girl really getting it. Not only do you write the testimonies in each chapter, but you follow each one with God's truth and what he says about our voice and what he says about security Mm -hmm. and what he says about identity and so on. It's great to hear someone, you know, agnostic said, and I got that God Mm -hmm. part. So will you share a few of the truths that you have shared in the book as a response to some of those chapters that you wrote that you really feel like girls of color? I mean, we all need to hear them. Yeah. Particularly young people, because when you're young, you can just feel so like an outsider anyways, but Mm -hmm. that's even more so for somebody living as a minority in a culture. Yeah. So what are some of those truths that you wrote out?
1: Uh, so, f- for example, in the first chapter, the young girl, she's nine years old, she was struggling with strength and weakness, right? She had asked, why did God make me a warrior when I'm really just weak? Yeah. That was her question. You know, I'll never, f- never forget this girl. I don't know where she is in life, but I'll never forget her. And, and uh,
0: that part, I was just like, oh,
1: sweet girl. I know. I mean, what? what a question, yeah. you know? But anyway, you know, and I'm still floored about it to this day for someone just so young to be able to articulate that type of question. But the truth that came from that, the, the the spiritual truth at the end of the chapter was about strength and weakness and how God, when we're weak, carries, carries our strength. He is our strength, but also that God makes room for our weakness. Mm-hmm. Right? And he for, is strong oh. in that. Right. And I think the idea that we, I would say for this. It's more for women in general. You know, I think that people read it and they can get something out of it. But I think women in general, women and women of color, just women in general struggle with the idea of having to carry so much and having to be strong women, women of God, strong women in general, and that there's not a lot of room for weakness and that we have to sort of hide it or, or suck it up or, but that it's it's okay. It's more than okay. Yeah. And that God sort of like affirms us in, in both states that we're at. Um, and I think we have a tendency to just try to hurry people out of their, their weakness. It's like when someone's grieving, right? It's like, you know, you funeral and you go through or whatever and you, they, you give them a few weeks. And then after a few months, if they're still, you know, talking about them, we're like feeling uncomfortable. And that's not how God is with us, you know, and that we truly can relinquish our weakness over to Christ, and then also at the same time that it's okay to to sit in it for a little while. So that was one that was really important. And that sort of went with particularly the strong Black woman, this idea that strong Black woman is a phrase. And so that was the cultural truth that sort of arose out of that. I think the second chapter was more about the the image of God. Honestly, the image of God one is something that really could be the whole book, you know, when I talk about the Imago Day, I specifically talk about it in that chapter, because the girl was struggling with her skin complexion, her hair, her weight. And so for me, well, and
0: let me interrupt real quick, because mm-hmm. is that the chapter with the girl too, who lived in a predominantly mm-hmm. black community, and then she moved?
1: Yeah, she went to the a school, school black.
0: was like, she was one of the only black people mm-hmm. in her whole school. So it was like a complete cultural shift for her.
1: Yeah. So it was a cultural shift for her. And she was dealing with comments and things. And like I said, in the beginning, when you're like, these things are coming at you, and they make you feel uncomfortable, and you don't know why, you know, when you're young. And sometimes it's not blatant. And I think for her, she even said it in her like, when she was, uh, wasn't committed, but when she was in one of those um, treatment facilities, yes, she would say my counselor meant well, she kept saying that, yeah you know, she she meant well, so she sort of le- left it alone, but she kept making comments, or she just didn 't understand or whatever but um, the struggle so much, particularly with black girls there 's so much aesthetic mm. uh, challenges it 's a constant thing your whole life, you know because you 're growing up in a world where you are the minority and where your the uniqueness of your looks is not celebrated by the totality of the culture. Yeah. And so it's this constant thing, you know, and for me, the Mago Day and the image of God message is so important. But for me, for that one, particularly with churches, I put a lot of the responsibility on churches and ministries for that, because that's where we need to be hearing it. Now, of course, in school, you know, I was getting things left and right, but in, in, in and in other spaces, but churches, I think, particularly have a real responsibility to project that message. And that's not where, you know, well, we're all one. So it's all good. You know, like that's not enough. That's it's not to say that that in and of itself is not um, sufficient. Like, you know, it's just not, it's it's definitely not enough. And I think that there need to be messages about what that means, the image of God. I think the churches, I think we get a lot of personal relationship stuff. You know, you get a lot of that growing up and how to have a personal relationship with Christ and, you know, sin, a lot of internal, internal. And and that is, hey, uh, you know, your soul work and your spirit work, that's what's most important. But when your external is being sort of like vilified daily, how do you reconcile that? And that is where those messages that we we are literally all the image of God, but not necessarily like, Hey, us as a total is the image. It's you're the image of God. You're the image of God. You're like, so sort of like on an individual basis.
0: Well, and that whole idea too of, okay, yes, we often preach God loves you. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, but God also loves this person over here just Mm -hmm. as much as of an individual Mm -hmm. as he does us as a corporate body. And I think we've done so much work to make sure people realize that God came for like us as individuals that we've almost mm-hmm. forgot. No, there's a whole entire church of people who mm-hmm. look, act, think, worship. I mean, live mm-hmm. differently than we do Yeah, that God still loves and died for. And he wants right. us to all figure out how to embrace One another for our differences and for our likenesses.
1: And I don't think we do that as a church. We don't do that. Until we start doing missions work or enter some sort of intercultural something, that's when we go. That's when we're open to that. Oh, yeah, you know, but Like, but don't be own talking own to your neighbor home? who's... Right, exactly. Oh, in, our, in our home, in our own land, in our own... We have a really hard time wrapping. Yeah, we have a hard time wrapping. But if we get on a plane and go somewhere, yeah. we see the beauty of the diversity of God. I mean, you know, it's so interesting,
0: it is. A yes. Mm-hmm. See, we could talk for an hour just about that, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, this kind of brings up my next question so many times when I talk to fellow white Christians about anything that has to do specifically with people of color, racist ideas. I mean, don't yeah. even bring up sometimes, mm-hmm. not with everyone. That's mm-hmm. not fair for me to say because I yeah. do have a group of friends that that's not true of. Mm -hmm. But if I bring up even sometimes the word minority culture, people are like, Mm. uh, you know, they give me the blank stare or the blanket statement of I don't see color. Right. Or, you know, we're all created in God's likeness, like we've talked Mm -hmm, about. Like we said, yeah. So what are a few things, if you could say two or three things, or even one for that matter, to the majority white Christian America? about the importance of really having like why that safe space is needed, why we need to give people of minority cultures a voice. In this case, we're talking about black culture. Mm -hmm. What would you want them to
1: know? I think a lot of times when we bring up those types of topics, people automatically get defensive because there is a sense of Culp- Which word culpability? Like when you have to bear and,
0: some responsibility, and they're like, "I didn't do anything."
1: Exactly. That's that's an automatic. It doesn't matter. It does in certain terms puts things on other people, and that's where we need to stop right there because mm. I think we need to acknowledge that, yeah. and it's not until. And I think on, much, on multiplicity of topics, right? But we're specifically talking about issues around like race. That that's that's the point of the body, right? That we are responsible for one another. Mm. You know, the the hand can't say to the foot, and you know all of that. Like yeah, we, we, don't need you. we we literally are. And that language is all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout the Gospels about bearing one another's, so, You know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so there's a sense of personal responsibility for someone else's um, plight, whether it's their, their insecurities, their challenges or whatever, that sense of personal responsibility automatically comes off. So that's the part that we need to sort of stop at, I think, when we're sort of having these sort of discussions, because we can't get to the rest of it until we acknowledge the fact that you, we are all responsible. For one another. And even in a sense, let's say that some discomfort with, like, you and I were having a conversation about something, whatever, and there's some discomfort that you're feeling. I would say, even vice versa, right? In the sense that there is a responsibility that I would have with you, right? In terms of not necessarily, oh, making you feel comfortable, but also making sure that we get to a place where we can see eye to eye where the two of us can like sort of move forward so it's not my sole responsibility to necessarily make you feel comfortable but at the same time like if I'm bearing things and you're carrying something so that's sort of really out of the box sort of thinking right yeah so you know the idea that when we're talking about you you can fly to another country and you can see the beauty of that but next door right you can't why because they're that neighbor that they're in your school, they're across the street. You bear some sense of responsibility in that. Once everyone, what well, white people, if we say that, really start to see really start to embrace that as the, go- the gospel message, part of an essential part of the gospel message, bearing one another's, not just bearing one another's sin, like the sin against them, but their challenges, their burdens, you know, all yeah. those types of things, and taking some part, in it, not, not necessarily the whole thing, but taking some part, then we can begin to move forward with, mm. okay, then now what can I do? Mm. You see what I mean? I do see um, what I mean. There's a sort of like surface bearing one another's or, you know, hey, make sure you donate to such as such, you know, like we make sure that we're charitable, that we're giving back in certain, but the lifestyle of bearing that would require an open, like an open heart, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of like in an mind and a humility. It really like pushes you down a little bit to be like, oh my gosh, like I'm partially
0: I am a part of the problem.
1: Right. a Part of the problem also a part of the solution and for a lot of people that are resistant they don't want to be they don't want to acknowledge that they're part of the problem nor do they want to acknowledge nor do they want to have any role or responsibility in being a part of the solution and so as a result they will automatically push back Mm -hmm. on these types of conversations because they don't want to carry it and bear it at all and it's also deeply spiritual because it's so deeply ingrained in the dna of this country Mm -hmm. So much spiritual warfare is uh, is attached to it that that's another thing that they're feeling, right? Mm-hmm. They're feeling like sort of centuries of spiritual... And so often
0: know. the inability to even put a name to it is what I've experienced. Because, I mean, I pushed back on that for a mm-hmm. couple of years. And then once I finally started sitting across from uncomfortable, mm-hmm. it took me months to mm-hmm. really begin to break down some of the defensiveness that I felt and start mm-hmm. saying wait a minute, these are people I care about. Mm -hmm. And they're telling me a part of their story that has really wounded them. Mm. It's not made up. This is like their reality. So why can I not just sit here, number one, and listen? Mm -hmm. Number two, say, I believe you. And then number three, make sure if I see that in the future to speak up against it. Which I feel like a lot of times for someone in my position is one of the biggest first steps is, no, if you're sitting in conversation and you hear something and the person may not even realize that that is a racist type comment. But Mm -hmm. it's primarily because, like you said, it's so woven Mm -hmm. into the fabric of our daily lives that you don't even realize it. You got to speak up. Mm -hmm. and say, well, think about it this way. How about if you were this person Mm -hmm. and you walked into the car dealership Mm -hmm. and you had to call your white friend because you knew you were going to be viewed as the angry black woman and everybody Mm -hmm. in there was going to be mad at you just because they didn't deal with you in the same way they would have dealt with a white woman walking in here. Mm -hmm. I just share those examples because I feel like it took me a long time to really get to that place. And it takes, like you said, some uncomfortable sitting in it to get there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it's like, I may not be the culprit, yeah, but I play a role and acknowledging that is really difficult for some people, you know? Oh, for sure. So I think honestly, that's where it starts. But if you see that, if you see that sort of acknowledgement and your, your role in it as a part of the kingdom of God, then there's purpose. There's, there's purpose in it. There's a larger picture. There's, you know what I mean? People, yeah. people will see Christ as a result of it.
0: Absolutely.
1: And if you, if you, if you go there with that discomfort, if your discomfort has a purpose, then, you know, it's a little bit easy to wrap your mind around because you're, you're a part of something bigger than you.
0: Yeah. So true. Well, as this book is slowly preparing to launch out into the world, what do you hope comes from it?
1: So there were two things that have happened over the last few weeks. So the, the first one was when the, uh, the young girl that I wrote about that said, you know, I even got the God part. That was, that was number one. So yeah. that phrase mm-hmm. is what I would like to hear. That's one of the biggest things. I even got the God part from people. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I had published a weekly interview, so I had talked to that. When I had that interview, the woman that um, is doing the PR, I have a person doing PR for the book now, Talked to her yesterday. And these were all, these are all white women, right? They all said the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned so much and no, no. And another woman from living Lutheran, she read it and interviewed and they all said as a white person, I read this and I learned things that I didn't know Mm -hmm. about I didn't know that some of the women in my life or girls in my life sort of experienced before. And, you know, okay, not, oh, now I'm going to go change the world. But that was something that was important, too, because I know black girls and black women are going to read the book. That's not, you know, that's sort of like the target. Right. But for me, it's people that, you know, people don't necessarily expect to read the book um, or expect to get something out of the book. Yeah. Um, That do. That's something that's very, very, very important to me. Um, And to hear those comments um, made, then I'm like, good, because I want people to pick up the book and not just think, oh, well, this book is for black women, you know what I mean? Because it's not, it's about black women girls. It's not four per se, right? Exactly. It's, and if those people aren't reading or people who are not necessarily believers are reading, then that's my audience. That's the one that I want to get. And so that's what I'm hoping more than anything. anything. Yeah.
0: yeah. I really enjoyed it in the, like you said, the perspective of, I love to he- read stories about other people's lives. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a memoir kind of junkie to almost a fault sometimes my husband's like you read the most depressing books i'm like they're not all depressing it's somebody's story which means it has good and bad right mm-hmm. but um i really appreciated that at the end of each chapter you know you just pointed back to a main truth of, you know, what God really says about us as individuals. And so I really appreciated that. But as we close up, I ask a couple of questions of my interviewees, just because this podcast is called Grace Enough. And so will you share with our listeners just a time in your life where you really feel like you had to cling to the unmerited favor of God?
1: Um, writing this book. So I I said in the beginning of the book, week after I wrote it, one of my best friends died from high school. And that was a sudden death for me. That was very, very difficult. That was very, very difficult. And when he died, I had just signed the contract a week before. And I had just started work at the Hill. week before right a
0: lot of transitions
1: I had moved and I was when you're working at boarding school you you know there are no work hours you know it's like you're you're just there you're just there you know I didn't have a I was just overwhelmed with everything and was grieving a lot Mm -hmm. you know and writing and I just didn't know how I was going to write the book at all I thought you know, when I signed that I was going to have all these hours to write and be, you know, walking on the beach somewhere and thinking (laughs) thoughts and, you know, like just have all this space and and room in my heart. And I didn't have any room. I didn't have any room in my head or my heart, you know, and, um, I was exhausted most of the time I was tired and it was just a very painful process. It was really, really painful. And, I really think, you know, when reactions like her name was Jana, reactions like her reaction, that basically was how I felt like it, you know, when she sort of cried and was sort of overwhelmed, didn't really understand what to say. I was like, those are the emotions that I was experiencing when I was writing, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was finished, I looked back when I was finished writing and I just said, man, I have no idea I have no, I mean, now I do have an idea, right? Like it was like completely the grace of God that was with me, you know, but it was grace that carried me. It was grief that carried me. Yeah. I don't know what the book would look like. I have no idea what the book would look like had I not been grieving and had I not been been exhausted, had it been that book that I wanted to write, you know, with all the time and my heart was clear and all of that. I don't know if it it would look the way that it looks right now.
0: Right. The raw Uh, mm -hmm. emotion that comes out.
1: Yeah, so I definitely believe that God's grace got me through that and continues to.
0: I know. The grace of God is just such a tangible yet intangible—I can't even describe it. I mean, there's yeah. just so much to it. I mean, time after time during interviews, I hear people tell these stories, and I'm like, wow, God, you just show up in the most unexpected— tangible ways it's just mm-hmm. unbelievable you really
1: you can't explain it and i can't i will never be able to take credit for writing this book and granted mm-hmm. i don't you know in the past i don't want to believe that you know oh, i'm a believer i'm not going to take credit you know you say things like god <laughs> you know and i'm like no literally like i just yeah i quite literally don't know how
0: right <laughs> like it truly was him
1: it truly was not myself
0: <laughs> well lastly if you had the opportunity sometime down the line to sit down with your grandchildren and offer them some wisdom, what is something you would like to share with those generations to come?
1: Um, that there are no formulas to life. Mm. That to really just sort of take the pressure off of feeling like there is a right way to doing things, that every single person is is on their own journey. We're all learning things differently. God is dealing with us in different ways. And there was a time where I just, I felt like I had to do things in a particular order. And, and it's just not that way. We're all evolving and growing and learning. We're all different than we were three months ago, yes. different than we were a year ago. That it's all just a learning process and just to take it in stride. And also the other thing is to be as present as possible. We all live too much in the future.
0: Well, Christy, thanks so much. And I just want to encourage everybody to go and order or read the Parable of the Brown Girl. And where can people find you on all the social media outlets?
1: So on Instagram, I'm at Christy Adams. I'm on Twitter at Christy Lauren. That's my middle name. I'm not on Facebook, but Parable of the Brown Girl is on Facebook. And just my website, ChristyLaurenAdams.com.
0: Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out.
1: Thank you for listening to the Grace
0: Enough podcast. Tune in next time.